And now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 19, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that we would rightly apply it today. So grant us your spirit. Fill us with your spirit that I may articulate these things clearly, that we might receive them and be conformed to your will, to be overjoyed at the things that make you happy, uh, to pray for the removal of all things that, that you hate and rejoice in your, your conquering of sin and those who oppose you. So Father, join our voices with these angelic and heavenly voices today in praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, in traditional weddings, there's always that wonderful moment right at the opening of the ceremony where the mothers have been seated, the grandmothers, everybody's, everybody's found their place. And then the music rises, you have this fanfare and flourish of music, and the bride makes her grand entrance. And everyone stands in honor of her and they turn and look as she walks into the room up the aisle. She is the focal point. Every eye in the room watches her procession to the front as she's escorted by her father who accompanies to her to the altar and presents her, her father presents her to her husband. And there's typically this part of the service where uh, the pastor asks, who gives this woman to this man? And the father answers, I do. Why do we do this in this order? Why do we tend to, in you know, traditional ceremonies, why do we tend to do it the same way every time and insist on doing it this way? Why doesn't the man process up the aisle uh, accompanied by his mother? Uh, why why uh, doesn't everybody just kind of you know, get together at the front. Why this, why this ceremony of a processional and a, a father walking his daughter to the altar and handing her over to her husband? Why, why is this important? Why do we do this? Are, are these just silly disposable traditions that, you know, they just don't mean anything anymore. Just do whatever you want to do and uh, it doesn't matter. Or do they have some deeper meaning that 
we really ought to preserve these things. We really ought to keep these things intact. I would suggest that the traditional wedding ceremony that we're all familiar with reflects certain biblical truths and has precedents that go back as far as the Garden of Eden. Eve didn't have a human father to present her to her husband, Adam. She didn't have a human father to walk her down the aisle. But her father, God, brought her to the man. That's what the text says, that God brought her to Adam. He processed her into the garden sanctuary, and he presented her to her husband and gave her to him. And that's when Adam sings over her and rejoices over his wife. And then God, he pronounces uh, the, the whole cause, the purpose of marriage. God says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. From there on, we read that men marry, women are given in marriage. That language is intentional. That's not an accident uh, or, or just a nice way of phrasing things. A man takes the initiative to leave his own home, to leave his father and mother. He goes out and he finds his bride and her father gives her in, in marriage. Her father is her protector and provider until he gives her to her husband, who then becomes her protector and provider, who rejoices over her and sings over her as Adam does over his bride, as Jesus does over his bride, as we're going to study this morning. The woman is not oppressed or, 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 or uh, subdued in any of this. She's the one that we all stand up and watch as she comes in. We're, she's the one we rejoice over as her husband rejoices over her. She is uh, uh, established. She is fortified by her husband's love and protection and provision. And this reflects all kinds of things, all kinds of realities that are grounded in creation when we, when we follow these traditions. It also um, reveals things that are are, are true in the gospel. In Ephesians 4, Paul demonstrates certain gospel truths about the love of Christ for his people and how those are reflected in marriage. There are parallels between the love of Jesus for his bride and the love of a man for his wife, and even back in the garden, the love of Adam for his bride. God put Adam into a death sleep when he took Eve out of his side. Your English translations often translate that word rib when, uh, uh, when Eve was created out of the side of Adam, that God took a rib. But the word is side. God took a chunk out of Adam. He took his whole side out and he put him into a deep sleep. You better be in a deep sleep if somebody's going to take a chunk out of you. So God puts Adam into a death sleep. He's, he's, he's completely uh, anesthetized. Is that the right word? He is completely under when God puts Adam into his sleep and God creates his wife out of his side. And then, and then God resurrects Adam out of this death sleep into a new existence, a new kind of existence with his bride, Eve. So, that's the picture we get, right? Adam was wounded in his side, and out of that comes his beloved. God pulled Adam apart and then made something new and then put him back into a one flesh relationship with his bride, Eve. And of course, this all points to the work of Jesus. In the crucifixion of Jesus, his side was wounded, and out of that side flowed water and blood out of which his bride is formed. The bride of Christ is formed out of water and, and blood. 
This is the story. Jesus goes to seek his bride. Jesus goes down into death. He is resurrected. And when he's resurrected, he's given his beloved. He dies for his bride. And by his death, he becomes her protector and provider. Is the church oppressed or subdued or abused by her husband? When we call Jesus the protector and provider of the bride, certainly, certainly not. Um, and so throughout the prophets, God portrays himself as a husband, uh, and his people are a bride in prophetic language. And their union between uh, husband and wife, the union between God and his people, is a covenant. It's a real relationship. And so when uh, his people go into idolatry, what does God call that? Especially in the prophets, what does he call it? He calls it adultery. It's adultery to go after other gods. For the nation of Israel, going after idols and going to other nations for help, the prophets call that prostitution. There's a whole book in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, where Israel's idolatry is, is, is painted dramatically as uh, prostitution. That is what God calls it, and that's how he refers to it. So in our study of the book of Revelation, we have just seen daughter Zion. We've just seen the city of Jerusalem portrayed not in the glory of a bride, but we've seen her portrayed in the shame of a harlot. Daughter Zion has prostituted herself through her unholy union with the beast of the Roman Empire. She's rejected her mighty bridegroom, Jesus. She's rejected her mighty Samson, her mighty Boaz. She's rejected him. She shouted for his crucifixion and in the same breath declared that she has no king but Caesar. That's a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. When they say crucify him, we have no king but Caesar, they declare who they God is and who their husband is or who their lover is. They love Caesar more than Jesus. And so the worship at her temple, worship which was intended to be a place where she renewed covenant with her husband, a place where she met him and was loved by him and, uh, and, and renewed her relationship with him, that temple has become defiled by, by multiple abuses and hypocrisies. And she's been given many opportunities to repent. She's been given many chances to confess her sins, to, to correct. But instead, she intensifies her persecution of the church. She turns the people of God into martyrs. She kills uh, the children of God in, in that, that striking image that we just read. Uh, we saw her drinking the blood of the martyrs. She's not a source. City uh, of the city of Jerusalem, daughter Zion is not giving life. She's giving death. She's distributing corruption and defilement. And so in the book of Revelation, in this narrative, we see her time is up. Uh, final judgment has come. Now in history, God's vengeance against Jerusalem and in history, his vengeance against the temple and the old world of the old covenant came in 70 AD when everything was destroyed by the Romans. That's the historical context for these things that we've been reading about. That event is in John's future as he writes about these things. He says these things must shortly come to pass and they did. He said these things are very near and they were, they weren't some far off events, but things that are near. And so everything that we've been reading about has been pointing toward that final judgment of Jerusalem and the temple. But now that the false bride 
Israel has been put away. Now that the harlot has been judged, it's time for the presentation, the grand entrance of the true bride, the church. This chapter, as we open chapter 19, puts us back in the heavenly sanctuary where the music starts up and all the hosts of heaven sing as they watch her procession. And we get to share in this procession as we work through this today. So we're just going to read the first 10 verses of, of chapter 19, and we'll work through one or two or three at a time. Verse one, hear this again. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Hallelujah means praise Yah. It means praise the Lord. And that word hallelujah is all over the Psalms, but the only time it comes up in the New Testament is in Revelation chapter 19, and it's used four times in this chapter. When, when hallelujah or hallelujah appears in the Psalms, it's usually in reference to some mighty act of God. He has done this wonderful thing. He has worked out this great deliverance. And the word hallelujah is not itself a praise. I know when something great happens to us, we're inclined to say, well, hallelujah, you know, that's great. But a hallelujah it, itself is not a praise but it's a call to praise. Hallelujah is an imperative. It means praise the Lord. You praise the Lord. I want you to come join me. It's a shout to say rejoice in this happy thing that I'm celebrating. We're going to jump back and forth to the Psalms a couple times this morning. So if you keep your hand in Revelation, but you want to follow along, run back to Psalm 148, where this hallelujah famously appears, because it begins in your translation of the Bible, it will say praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, but that word is hallelujah. So Psalm 148 begins, hallelujah, hallelujah from the heavens. Praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts, praise him sun and moon, praise him all you stars of light, praise him you heaven of heavens and you waters above the heavens. The call there, it's a command, it's an imperative, praise him. And then the psalmist points to everything in creation. You say, you praise him and you praise him. Stars, sun, moon, waters, mountains, animals, creatures, things, whatever. You praise him. Everything that was created was created for praise. That's the reason that it exists. Ultimately, is to bring pleasure and honor and glory to God. That includes you. That's why you were created. You were created for praise. Your body is an instrument of praise. So when you go to work tomorrow, you're working things out and you're doing your work and you're doing faithful duties and it's all in praise to God. Well, the psalmist uh, is saying he's issuing this imperative, praise the Lord, everything, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And very often when we hear hallelujah, we get the word for. So praise the Lord. Why am I praising the Lord? Well, here's a reason. For, and we get that in Psalm 148 in verse 13, let them praise the name of Yahweh for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven, and he has exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him. Hallelujah. So the call is praise the Lord, all of creation. Why? For he has lifted up his people. He is exalted. And because he is exalted in glory, he has lifted his people up in glory. He has, has given them strength and blessing and he set them over creation. So um, 
there's, there's, there's often this, this reason why, this for that we are to praise. And sometimes the reason that we're called to praise, the for from the hallelujah, we praise God because he has judged our enemies, because he has vanquished sin. Like in Psalm 104, verse 35, I will sing to Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing to my praise to God while I have my being. My, may my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in Yahweh. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. So the, so the reason we're singing hallelujah, the reason we're praising the Lord, the call to praise the Lord is because sinners are going to be removed from the earth and the wicked are going to be no more. So, so when that praise comes, it's not that we're gloating over someone else's misery and suffering. We're, we're not taking a victory lap because somebody else's day is ruined. I mean, that's not, that's not why we're singing that, but we are exuberant that God has kept his promises and that he has delivered the earth from the rule of the wicked. Because when wickedness reigns, everyone suffers. When, when wickedness rules the earth, it's miserable. And so we rejoice when God in his justice removes oppressive, sinful people. That's, that's why we're called to rejoice. So here is it's exactly what's happened in Revelation 19. We're singing Alleluia. Why? What's the for? Well, we're going to see that in verse two. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. But one more little note before we get on to verse two is that he's being praised because salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. That little word, our, is setting up what's about to happen later in the chapter. This word, our. In the beginning of Revelation, the cherubim sing about our Lord and our God. And then the court of heaven talks about our God. And the 144 members of old Israel are sealed to be preserved into the new world. They're carried over into the new world. They have the name of God on their forehead and they are identified as the servants of our God. He owns them, but they also possess him. He is their God. Remember in the garden when uh, Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, don't, don't hold on to me. I've got to go. I've got to ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In the resurrection of Jesus, he makes his father our father. And his God becomes our God. He is not miserly. He doesn't keep his relationship to the Father all by himself and say, no, you can't have him. He's all mine. Stay away. Leave me alone. No, what Jesus does in his resurrection and his ascension is says, my Father's so wonderful and so great and so amazing. I want him to be your Father too. I want you to share in his praise and blessing and honor and glory and strength and salvation. And so in Jesus's work, he shares his Father. So there is this increased sense of belonging and ownership that radiates out from the throne room to the world in the book of Revelation. There's not this miserly harboring of affection. We now can say he is our God. Jesus is our King. He is our Savior. He is our beloved, as the woman in the Song of Solomon sings. She says, I am my beloved's, 
And my beloved's is mine. He's mine. He's all mine. He belongs to me. And that's what, yes, we belong to Jesus, but he belongs to us. He is our savior. He is our king. He is, he is our man who fights for us and defends us and protects us. There's this mutual indwelling and this possession here between Christ and his people that, that marriage is a shadow of. Marriage, human uh, marriage, our, our marriages are a hint of that, of that, it's reflecting that reality, that, that mutual possession of Christ and his people. So I said there's a hallelujah and then a four, and we get that in verse two. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Remember in the last chapter, we saw the call for the apostles and the prophets. It was in um, 1820. The prophets and the, and the apostles were called to rejoice over the judgment of the city. And I asked you at that time, doesn't that sound a little mean to rejoice over the judgment? The kings of the land are weeping because they can't share in her iniquities anymore. The merchants and the ship captains are all lamenting because they, there's no more city to buy their wares. They can't trade and buy and sell and, and help them accumulate wealth. So there's plenty of lamentation to go around, but the heavens rejoice. And those who populate the heavens rejoice. And here we see them responding to that call of worship we saw in the last chapter. They're exuberant because God has answered the prayers of the martyrs. This is the harlot who has shed the blood of his servants. That's, what, that's why they're rejoicing. Uh, remember those who had been slain by this harlot city, <clears throat> who'd been attacked by the chief priests of the temple. They cried out to God. Back in Revelation chapter 6, they said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? We saw their prayers go up like incense before the throne of God. And the response to this is that an angel takes coals off of the heavenly altar and flings them to earth. Their prayers went up like incense and fire came down from God's heavenly altar. And now we see the full the full realization of that, that God has definitively judged this wicked city and he has vindicated the martyrs. He has commuted their sentence. He's demonstrated that they were innocent. The martyrs were innocent. Their accusers then were murderers. They are the guilty ones. And now the smoke of this destruction rises up to heaven like an ascension offering, like the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah, like the smoke of the city of Jericho and the other, the other Canaanite cities. Uh, the smoke rises up as a sacrifice, which means that, remember what I said, you're created for praise and, and, and worship. That's what you're created for. Well, God is going to get it out of you one way or the other. Your life is going to be an offering one way or another. Either you are going to offer voluntary praise or God is going to rejoice over your destruction. Either way, he's happy. Either way, he's fine. You either offer yourself as a living sacrifice or you become a burnt offering. Either way, God is glorified. The smoke of Jerusalem goes up forever and ever, they say in verse three, age after age. This means that this judgment is permanent. Jerusalem and the temple and the old covenant arrangement with Israel is finished. It's over forever and ever. The smoke rises. 
The harlot city is judged. She's about to be replaced in this text by the true bride, the church. So I have a hard time understanding how we could ever come away from this thinking that God has some future plans for the city of Jerusalem, or he has some future plans for the temple, or or somehow God has some designs to get the sacrifices cranked up again. When when you're watching those prophecy shows at two o'clock in the morning, you know, on the high channels of the of the television, and you hear somebody saying, Yeah, gonna gonna breed this heifer, and they're gonna get this heifer. It's perfect. I've seen one of them. They're gonna get it, and they're gonna take it back up there, and they're gonna build that temple back. We're gonna gonna have those sacrifices cranked up again. It's all in God's plan. Sir, have you read Hebrews? Have you read the book of Galatians? Are you familiar with these texts? There are entire sections of the New Testament dedicated to the matter of the finality and the superiority of the work of Jesus. Why do we need a temple? We have the Lord Jesus. Jesus is our perfect temple. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our perfect and final and entirely sufficient sacrifice. Why would we ever need this thing to be resurrected again? So the modern nation state of Israel has no biblical relevance. It has no purpose. It's a secular nation born out of European guilt over the events of World War II. But that nation, those people don't care about God, and they don't care about pleasing him, and they don't have any special connection to the Lord. Israel, like all nations, will be brought under King Jesus. All peoples will bow the knee, yes, but there's no special relationship that God has to a specific place or a specific race of people where they have some special standing apart from the gospel, where God has kind of carved out this little area, this little space for them to work in where the gospel is not relevant. Salvation is in Christ alone and will be in Christ alone forever and ever, age after age, amen. Salvation is not in any geographical or political or national affiliation. And to say so is to deny the work of Christ. It's to deny the gospel. There is nothing left. All of the promises to Israel were inherited by Christ. And all of their fulfillment is in Christ. And the only way to the Father is through Christ. There is no other way and there's nothing left for Israel, for the temple, for Jerusalem, unless they bow the knee to Jesus. That's that's all that's left for them. So what we've witnessed in Revelation is God's final verdict, his final word, the final thing that he has to say about the old world of the old covenant. Israel, the temple, Jerusalem, sacrifice. What is the verdict? The verdict is alleluia, glad it's gone. Praise be to God. Praise the Lord. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. It's gone. It's done. It's over. Thanks be to God. He's not going to go back and resurrect this harlot so he can marry her. That's Where is that in the narrative? Uh, so let's welcome the true bride and love her and adorn her uh, with the righteous acts of the saints as we're about to read. Uh, verse four. So the four living, uh, I'm sorry, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Notice the progression. 
The elders and the cherubim fall down in worship. A voice comes from the throne, and then a great innumerable company, a multitude echoes the praise that comes from the heavenly throne room. Praise begins at the throne and the court of God, and then it reverberates out to the whole heavens and earth. This is how it goes. Things begin in heaven. Things get imagined, built, put together in heaven, in the mind of God, and then they land on earth and they transform the earth. God's law, his word, his design begins in heaven and the earth is conformed to heaven's blueprint. At the beginning of Revelation, there was one ascension when John went up into heaven to see what's going on there so he could write about it. But from here on out, the direction of all the work is earthward. The rider on the white horse is about to be sent from heaven to earth to conquer and rule the nations. The heavenly city descends from heaven to earth. God builds his city in heaven, but it doesn't stay in heaven. It descends to the earth. And when the book of Revelation wraps up, the final scene of the book of Revelation is not a bunch of us individually sitting on our own private cloud with our own harp and halo all by ourselves for eternity. We're not stranded on, on fluffy clouds with harps. That's not the last scene. The whole movement of the book of Revelation is earthward. It's toward the environment that God created for man. Heaven is not the end. It's the beginning. Heaven is the fountain out of which all things flow. Heaven is where things happen first. And then God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the flow we see here. You see this crescendo of a few voices singing, Alleluia. And then the voice booming from the throne of God, that same loud voice that Israel heard at Mount Sinai saying, praise God. And then the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings saying, hallelujah. So it goes, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It goes out and it, it, it amplifies. God thunders from his throne and his people thunder in response. He doesn't drown out their voice. He gives them a voice that thunders like his voice thunders. We're running out of time and I'd love to go back and look at Psalm 29. I think you're familiar with Psalm 29. It describes the voice of Yahweh. That's the one that says his thundering voice creates and destroys. It kills and makes alive. Uh, his, his voice turns the cedars into toothpicks. He makes the nation skip like a calf. He thunders, his voice thunders so that we can echo with thunder. Christian worship ought to be generally loud. There are a few exceptions, but even laments can be loud. Even when we're confessing our sins, that can be loud. If worship is always quiet, we're suppressing the spirit who gives us a voice. We're quenching the spirit who gives us a voice. I think I've told the story before, but there are times where my family has visited a church. We're looking, you know, for just a traditional liturgical church. We end up in a Lutheran church or something like that. And uh, there was one place particularly where the, the piano started, the music started. And I thought, wow, this is a really long intro. I wonder when we start singing. And then I looked around and I thought, oh, they are singing. And they're in the second verse and we couldn't hear them. And so then we start singing and everybody turns around and look at us like we're crazy because we're actually singing. We're uh, singing out. Great volume in worship is encouraging. Quietness in worship is so discouraging. Do you really believe this or not? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Do you? <laughs> Do you really? Amen. Okay. 
I'll believe that, I guess. No, great volume in worship is encouraging. It boosts our confidence. When you thunder in worship and when we thunder to each other, when we say, hallelujah, praise Yah, let everything that breathes praise Yah. You go out of this place, you walk out these doors, and then you keep thundering. You keep saying, you praise the Lord, and you praise the Lord, and you were created for praise, and Jesus is king. You better believe it. You better conform to him. Your life is going to be poured out and worshiped to him one way or another. You thunder it. God thunders, and you thunder. God's voice gives you a voice to use, to thunder. So use it. Use that voice and thunder as God thunders to you. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. There's a lot of clothing imagery in the Bible um, to be clothed with Christ or to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. Those are phrases we're familiar with. Here is the bride of Christ. She's the redeemed humanity. She is the people of God. She is the church. She's the people who've been joined to Christ. She's clothed with the righteous acts of the saints. Now, you may think that's an odd construction. And I had to stop and think about it at first. She's clothed with her own righteousness. Isn't that some kind of, is John slipping in some kind of Arminian or Pelagian theology in here? Is he, he didn't have the benefit of reading Calvin. So maybe he's, you know, He's getting something off here. It's a little wonky. No. Verse 8, it was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen. The whole thing, the whole process is a gift. She's given the Spirit of God in order to do righteous acts, and she does them, and they are her clothing. Her righteousness is her adornment. She is lovely and she's radiant because she obeys her husband, Christ. The fact that she can do anything to begin with, anything righteous, is itself a gift. And so we have the presentation of the true bride. In contrast to the harlot, she was clothed with rebellion. She was clothed with corruption and defilement. Now we have the bride of Christ decked out in holiness and she has made herself ready. The church has been granted authority by Christ to exercise self-discipline. She has to keep herself pure by holding to the pure word, by dealing decisively with sin and the unrepentant. This is how she prepares herself to be presented to her groom. Verse nine, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. From the beginning of this study, I've pointed out that the narrative of the book of Revelation can be neatly arranged around the steps we take in traditional historic Christian worship. Revelation is a vision of a heavenly worship service. So it should come to, as no surprise that it follows the very same patterns of worship that we see in the rest of scripture and the very same pattern of worship that we follow every Lord's Day. There's a lot of many parallels between what we do on the Lord's Day and what happens in heavenly worship as it's revealed in Revelation. So what do we do when we get together? Well, there's a call to worship. And then we fall down on our knees and we confess our sins. And then uh, we open up God's word and we read it and we study it and we hear it. Then we have a feast at the table of the Lord. And then we're blessed and we're sent out into the world to work 
and take dominion. If you want to look at that and, and consider it, that's an outline of the book of Revelation. It's exactly what happens. When we open the book of Revelation, it begins with a call to worship. John hears the blast of a trumpet and the Lord Jesus appears to John. And what does John do? He falls on his face. And so we have a section in Revelation where we deal with our sins. As Jesus corrects the churches, he calls them to repentance. He's dealing with their sins and washing them and making them clean. After our sins are dealt with, it's time to go up to lift our hearts up to the Lord. And that's exactly what happens in Revelation. John ascends into the heavenly sanctuary to hear God speak. And as John ascends, his ascension is accompanied with the host of heaven singing. What, what do they sing? Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, which just happens to be coincidentally the very same thing we sing when we ascend into the heavenlies in the spirit to hear God's word read, read and, and preach. That's what we do. It's not a coincidence. We do it on purpose um, because uh, we want things to go on earth as they do in heaven. And so we're copying heaven's pattern. And then we have the long word section of Revelation. The sermon is the longest part of the morning worship service, isn't it? It's the longest part. Well, that's the longest part of Revelation as well. So I'm justified. Uh, I, I, I mean, it works. Uh, the longest section of, of the worship service in Revelation is Jesus taking up the scroll and then he takes off the seals and he unrolls it and he trumpets out the contents and then he applies the contents of the, of the book. The word section of Revelation is the biggest chunk of it. And then after that, it's time for the feast. And that's where we are in Revelation. We have the, the feast, the marriage supper, the communion union meal. After this is over with, the Lord Jesus is going to climb on his horse and he's going to go out for war and the heavenly city will descend to earth and he will take dominion and rule. And that's what we're going to do next. We're going to eat at his table and then you're going to be blessed and you're going to ride on your white horses and you're going to go subdue the nations in the name of Jesus and you're going to rule. That's the pattern. That's the, that's the outline of Revelation. That's how we worship on the Lord's day. So there are all kinds of connections between this marriage supper in Revelation that we read about here and our weekly participation in the Lord's table. Here at this table, week by week, the bride gets to feast with her groom. It's the place where our fellowship to each other and our fellowship to Christ is restored and confirmed that we know that we are our beloveds and our beloved is ours. Not because we have some feeling, not because we've been brought to some emotional state that that kind of feels right, but it's confirmed in material blessings, things we can touch and smell and taste. So that's why we meet, by the way. That's why we have to meet here together in person. This is not something you could do on your own with, with bedhead and a bowl of Fruit Loops and your and your computer on your kitchen table. If worship is just a sermon, okay, do your Fruit Loops, do that thing and watch the sermon. But worship is more than that. It's the people of God meeting with Jesus. It's the bride of Christ meeting with her husband at his table and being fed by it. And there's so much more to say there, but I'm going to keep going to verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There are places in the Bible where people fall down and they worship angels and they're not rebuked. The parents of Samson, when they see an angel, they fall down. David, there's a point where he sees an angel and he falls down and the angels don't object to this. But remember, 
another thread we've been following throughout Revelation is that man's orientation toward the angels has changed. In Psalm 8, we read that we were created a little lower than the angels. But once Jesus has made that perfect sacrifice and now mankind can come into the presence of God and now man can enter the heavenlies through the man Jesus who has, who has pierced the heavens and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now that man has access to the heavenlies, the angels, we've seen, this happen, the angels get up from their thrones and man occupies those positions. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? Don't, don't sue each other. You're going to judge angels. And I'm not entirely sure what he means by that yet. I, I think maybe I have an idea, but I'm, I don't know that I know that fully. But what I do know is that something shifts with regard to man's relationship to angels. Man is elevated and now it's not appropriate for John to fall down at the angel's feet. The angel says, whoa, what are you doing? Get up, don't worship me. And the, the message of the angel is, is stop worshiping me, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's a whole Trinitarian formula in what the angel says. He says, worship God. He talks about the testimony of Jesus and the spirit of prophecy. He's saying the worship of God is the basis for the witness of Jesus, the proclamation of the gospel, by which the Spirit prophesies, not in the sense of telling the future, but in speaking with a prophetic voice and rebuking and correcting and exhorting. So the angel says, worship God, preach the gospel, and prophesy in the Spirit. Speak truth and life to a dark and dead world. That's what you need to do. Uh, get up off your knees, and, and that's what you're being called to. The right worship of God is our primary strategy against the false worship of the beast. The right worship of God is our preservative against becoming the harlot. Notice that the angel's directive begins with don't worship. So don't worship me. That would make you an idolater. The very first step in right worship is not worship. There are things you stop worshiping. Refusing to participate in the worship of the beast or any other idol is the first thing you do. And then you worship God. Well, next week and, and following, we're going to work out the historical context of these chapters. But for now, as we wrap up this short section, I want to remember what has got John, what has got the cherubim and the elders of heaven, the heavenly host, the multitude of saints, what has got them all shouting and singing and rejoicing? Two things. It's the final judgment of the harlot city, Jerusalem, and the procession of the true bride, the church. Both things are causes for celebration by themselves, but you put them right next to each other and your shouts of praise are going to blow the roof off the place because you're so uh, happy. Uh, so on the first cause of celebration, know this, for the, this, this, this praise over the destruction of the enemies of God, never forget that our praise for God's judgment being acted out always comes from a place of self-reflection and sobriety. We realize when God judges the wicked, this is what God does with sin. This is what happens when there's rebellion. We rejoice in a God who conquers disbelief and who conquers sin. Why? Because we want it utterly vanquished in us. We confess that we are plagued by the effects of sin. We want sin to be completely subdued in us. Yes, I want sin defeated in the world. I want tyrants and murderers and thieves and abusers to be stopped. But more than anything, I want my own iniquities to be defeated 
first. And when that happens, I will rejoice just like I would when any other form of sin is uh, scoured off the face of the earth. The war that I want God to carry out in the world is a war that begins in me. And I delight in a God who is not satisfied with half measures, who's not satisfied with compromises. He's not happy leaving little tribes of Canaanites around the borders just to infect and create mayhem. Uh, It's not a God who bargains with terrorists. And so keeping this before our eyes, that the war begins in and among us, that that we uh, are, are ourselves sinful and in need of conquering, this is how we keep the bride pure and clothed in righteousness. So that's the first thing we rejoice over, that God is the God who conquers sin. Secondly, that the bride is purified, that she is made whole and presented in glory, that Our prayer and our hope is that all peoples and nations and families of the earth would recognize her when when she processes to meet her her groom, that that she would be decked in righteousness when when the nations and kingdoms of the world see her procession. Because there are times in history where she looks more like that other girl than than the pure and chaste radiant glory that we see here, right? There are times in history where she looks more like the harlot. And I'm afraid that we might be living in one of those times. And so we've got a lot of work to do. This, uh, we, we love her by reforming her. We call her to repentance. We pray for her and we are loyal to her, the church. We don't push her away, but we pursue her purity and peace. We receive the gift of the spirit to do righteousness and to do and to do the, the, the things that the spirit works out in us so that she is clothed in glory, so that she is decked in righteousness. And that's the calling for each of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the bride of Christ. We thank you that he rejoices over her because in that he rejoices over us, that he uh, that, that he is delighted to call us his own. And because of that, we get to call him ours. And so we pray that you would seal these things to our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit, reform us, transform us, conform us to the image of our Savior and our groom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.